You're listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Matt Loverin and me, Jim Shamaria. Our goal is to start a conversation about life and leadership in the local church. Welcome back to the Pastoral Calling Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. And we're really glad to have you along here for episode 13. Lucky 13. Lucky number 13. We need a hobbit. Yes. <laughs> Every podcast needs a hobbit. Yeah, that's true. I think most things, just in general, hobbits, those big hairy feet, nothing better. Well, anyways, I missed episode 12. That's was, okay. You I had a good gone. excuse. I did have a good excuse. I was, I think I was probably in the hospital when you recorded. We we're having our baby. My wife had our baby. And so that was exciting. Now we have a baby at our house. How's baby life? It's going pretty good. She's doing all the things that babies should do. And I'm just kind of along for the ride. Excellent. It's a blessing. Yeah. So uh, we're excited about this week's uh, interview. We interviewed Pastor Craig McDonald last week. Uh, Craig was one of my mentors when I kind of first got into the ministry. Um, but he's done a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of good insight about pastoral ministry. You had to leave, though, halfway through, right? I had to leave halfway through. So I'm excited to hear the second half of the interview as well. Pastor Craig was also my teacher when I was a student at Grace Bible College back in the mid-90s. And it's, it's great to see how our relationship has matured and evolved over the years just in conversations with him. I was so pleased to see that um, our different approaches and maybe philosophies of ministry, we've really come to appreciate one another uh, in a way that maybe we didn't when I was 19. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate his patience and with me and my own growth process, but I've also come to really appreciate him. Yeah. It, I, I'm just really looking forward to sharing this interview with you guys. I think it's, and girls out there, whoever's listening, uh, it's got some really good insight into some of the realities of, of preaching and like what that means to embrace the sermon as a craft, but also talk about some of the weightier matters of pastoral ministry of just getting to know your congregation and being in community with them. So it's, it's good. There's just such a sense of this calling as a burden mm-hmm. and you're able to, in the sermon, uh, unload yourself of that burden for a very temporary amount of time, but then it comes right back knowing right. that you've got to shepherd this congregation for, for the rest of the week and Sunday is coming. Right. It's interesting to think about how we talked to Joe in our last episode as someone who's just beginning in pastoral ministry. Yeah. And now to talk to Pastor Craig, who, although he's officially retired mm-hmm. from pastoral ministry, is still a pastor at heart and has a lot to offer. Yeah, so we got two ends of the spectrum. One, looking at what I would like my ministry to be, which was Joe, and now Craig looking back on saying this is what my ministry was. And so uh, hopefully out there, if you're a prospective pastor, if you're a longtime pastor, if you're a pastoral sympathizer, (laughs) this will be be good for you. Uh, But we always want to remind you that we are in the world of the internet for you. And so we say that this is a conversation. We want it to be a conversation. Um, we have a Twitter account. We'd love for you to follow us. And if you have questions or comments or complaints, you can send the complaints to Matt, compliments to me. Ha ha ha. And leave us a review on iTunes. And on iTunes, yep. We're still in the process of moving from uh, SoundCloud to something else. So we'll keep you posted on that. 
but yeah, we'd love for you to interact and to just know kind of what's going on in your lives out there. Maybe you have some ideas for future episodes. Uh, that would be great. But for now, let's enjoy just, the interview with Pastor Craig. Yeah, let's hand it over. Pastoral Calling Podcast. Today we are joined by pastor, ex-pastor, whatever. Yeah. Yes, all of the above. Used Craig, to be. Craig McDonald. Uh, Craig has had his name dropped a few times on the pod. but That's really true. You're right up there with Eugene Peterson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the poor man's Eugene Peterson. <laughs> but uh, now we have him. Craig is currently living somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, right? Um, about... 15 miles west of Eugene, Oregon, on three acres out in the woods. Yeah. So he made the pilgrimage back to Grand Rapids, Mecca, as you called it, a few mm-hmm. minutes ago, and we, uh, we squeezed in a little interview here. So we're excited to talk to Craig about ministry and life and, and uh, how long, I mean, when you combine all of your different pastoral roles, how long have you been a pastor? Uh, 42 years in ministry, but in the middle of that was 10 years as a professor at Grace Bible College. So 32 years a pastor, 10 years a prof. But you, and we just had a long conversation over coffee, and you consider your time as being a professor in many ways as pastoral. Yeah, I really enjoyed the pastoral relationship you develop with students. Some in particular, for whatever reason, just kind of latch to you and you're their pastor. In abstention, yeah. Mm. I enjoyed that a lot. It's really true. And you had a big impact on my generation with the guys coming up through pastoral ministry, who are many of whom are pastors now and have been pastors for 20 years. I was chairman of the ministry studies department, which meant I worked with those guys who, from their third year on, are in small classes, focusing on ministry tasks and responsibilities. And I worked with those guys a lot. And so, yeah, they're my boys. Yeah. Pastor of pastors kind of thing. or a, yeah. But I also taught freshman and sophomore Bible and theology classes. Some of those kids are in transitionary point of life and need the, the father figure slash pastor figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a little extra help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're one of the, the, the people that I know personally um, that most embody the idea of pastoral vocation. Um, I put my dad up there as, as one of those and a few other guys um, that I see, not you as a, as a pastor, nine to five, you do your job, but that's part of your identity mm-hmm. of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it'd be good for us to just kind of talk about some of those things that really resonate with you as a pastor. Um, I, was, I, t- I told you a few minutes ago, what I originally was going to do is ask you to talk to me about what you feel are the essential elements of a pastoral ministry. Um, but I think maybe I can safely say that we could boil that down to preaching and shepherding to some degree. Would you add anything to that or take anything away from that? There is of necessity a certain amount of administrative work. That, yeah. was, n- that was never anything I felt comfortable with or enjoyed. Right. So for me, it was mostly about preaching, teaching, and people. Right. So let's talk about that. Okay. Well, maybe you could talk about just the interplay of those two dynamics. Mm. If those are two central roles of the pastor, how do you see preaching informing your shepherding? 
and vice versa. What has that been like for you in your 42 years? Their primary contact with their pastor is that 35 minutes that you're preaching. That's how they see you and and how you relate to them during that period of time informs and, and, and shapes how they see you outside of that. My preaching style is very conversational, very informal. Um, I mean, I have a sermon structure, but I, I think typically they don't see it. One of the things I was taught when I took homiletics is, is they should never see the bones. Um, the, the, the sermon should be fleshed out enough. The bones are there and give it structure, but they don't see them. And I, I think that's accurate. Um, and so my style is very conversational. I relate to them. And I always pastored relatively small churches, which means I was preaching to Bill and Mary and Sue. I was seeing people, not a congregation. How does that change? Because I'm sure you've had experiences where you have preached in front of people that you don't know, whether it's at a camp yes. or yes. guest speaker or whatever. How does that, because we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, for you personally, how does that change or impact your preaching when you know who you're preaching to? I, uh, I can't help but, as, I, as, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I can't help but think this is how Lyle is hearing this. Because mm-hmm. I know Lyle's life and I know where he's at. And, and that causes me to think about how I say it because yeah. I know how it's impacting him. Yeah. As opposed to, you're right, when I speak at camp and there's 1,100 people out there, it's just a mass. It's an adrenaline rush. It's a lot of fun, but I think it's an entirely different kind of preaching experience. I much prefer the smaller to the larger. As much fun as it is to preach to a thousand people, I don't think that for me is the joy of preaching. Yeah. When you talk about your style as conversational, is that something that you intentionally cultivated or is that just who you are and so, therefore, that's how you preach. I mean, you talked a little bit some homiletic training and strategy involved there, but did you have to create that style? No, it wasn't, it wasn't conscious. Uh, I, I grew up, I was a kid who was afraid of my own shadow and did not speak unless spoken to. And, and I didn't become a speaker until I was here as a student at Grace Bible College as a student. Uh, and, and so that was not intentional. It just emerged. It just is who I am. Hmm. So would you encourage other pastors to tailor their preaching to who they are as that comes out and you develop your own style over years? Or do you want to gear your preaching and your style toward a certain kind of communication that is maybe more resonant with people? For instance, I'll use the example of myself. Okay. I tend to be overly intellectual, and it's very easy for me, if left to my own devices, to preach a sermon that makes sense to me, whereas I may not get on the level of my congregation or those who are listening to me. That takes conscious effort on my part. Do you think that that, that tendency um, is exaggerated or exacerbated because you're not the pastor of those people? If you looked at them and saw them as your people and had that connection with them, would you preach differently than you do? Or is it that you're inclined to do? I guess that's an unknown because... You've never... Because I've never been in the role. Yeah. And I've I've never not been in that role. And because I always served relatively small congregations, 150, 125 or less, and knew those people, they weren't faces, they were 
people that I interacted with, I don't, I don't know either. Um, the, we moved to Oregon almost exactly a year ago. The hardest part was leaving our kids and grandkids behind in Arizona. The second hardest part was finding a church. We have just in the last six, seven weeks landed on what I think will be our church, which is to say I've listened to lots of different preachers. I've been really discouraged at the quality of preaching uh, that we've heard. I have wondered aloud, are they teaching homiletics anymore? They've, some of them have been just horrid. Um, you know, Jim, <laughs> you and I were talking earlier about preaching being a craft. Uh, the, the craft isn't hardly being practiced anymore. I used to say, guys who want to preach in the worst way usually do. Um, <laughs> and, and so, We're getting some classic McDonald's <laughs> right now, just for those yeah. of you out there in podcast. Where, where every sermon is like your first sermon all over again. Yeah. <laughs> and because many of the churches we went to uh, were startups with guys who came out of business who always wanted to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Or guys who were youth pastors who always wanted to be the preaching pastor. And that's what I mean. Guys who want to preach in the worst way usually do. Um, but it does seem like the trend, if, what, if our experience over the last year is any indication, the trend now is almost entirely to conversational preaching instead of the kind of oratorical preaching that I grew up listening to. Hmm. I think that's a fair assessment. Very yeah. much so. Um, unfortunately, too often, conversational preaching is really short on, on substance. Right. That maybe the oration style had too much substance. Right. The, the pendulum seems to have swung. Right. Yeah. I would add to that, it seems that when you have that very conversational style, it's very easy to not preach scripture anymore, yes. but to preach one's own ideas yes. and one's own or main point, philosophy or which may be good or... advice or human wisdom, but it always seems tacked on to the text or the text seems tacked yes. on to They the use point. the Bible. They don't preach the Bible. Yeah. The Bible is used as a prop for whatever it is they want to say. And so how do you stay conversational and still make sure you're preaching scripture? I, I cannot answer that. And, and this may sound arrogant. I don't know. I don't know like I think a, a tennis player, a professional tennis player, knows how it is they do what they do. That is to say, I, at the risk of hubris, I really do think preaching is a gift that God gives. And if he gives it, you can't explain it. You just do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I can recognize guys who do it and guys who don't. I can't explain the dynamic there. It is a God-given gift to be able to take the truth of the Word of God and present it conversationally. Yeah, I don't know. And so the, the, the tricky part there is I think you come across preachers who have that gift and don't recognize that it's a gift. And recognize that instead they think of it as something that they have cultivated. Mm-hmm. And it takes a completely different perspective than somebody who understands it's a gift and thereby understands that they are simply, for whatever reason, God has allowed them to do this. They can approach that with a sense of humility and a sense of, 
which doesn't mean yeah. it's any less a craft that you have to work very hard on. Right. And don't get lazy and get sloppy. Yeah. Um, my first church lasted 18 months. And then in one fell swoop on at the same annual business meeting, they fired me and closed the church. Um, there were there were lots of <laughs> Sounds reasons. Sounds like a successful meeting. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you got a lot done. There were lots of reasons for that. It was a church that on Easter Sunday we had 22. I mean, the biggest Sunday of the year we had 22 people. Mm-hmm. Pam and I were the only couple under 60, and I was 22. All right? So there were a whole host of reasons. But before God, when that meeting was over, I knew one of the reasons was because I had fallen, my first church, fresh out of school, I had fallen into the habit of writing my sermons on Saturday night. Hmm. I was unemployed, which meant I took a salary reduction of about $50 a month. Um, It was really bad. (laughs) But I made one of those Old Testament type vows to God that if he ever let me back in ministry, I would never do that again. I, I was just thoroughly convicted of that before the evening was over. And I spent six years out in the wilderness. He let me back in ministry. And I determined that I would always have my sermon uh, wrapped by Friday at noon. That I had a, a spiritual obligation before God to do that prep. And so it's a gift he's given me, but that does not let me off the hook. Yeah. I, that's, I think, such that that interesting dynamic, again, going back to it, of the the role of the sermon in shaping and forming the congregation is so important but being able to balance it and be able to say if you do a sermon where you don't feel like you communicate well to be able to say that is not defining my ministry that that sermon was rubbish <laughs> or or whatever and so how do you walk that balance of I mean, I'm sure you've done a lot of sermons that have tanked. I, uh, I hated, despised Sunday afternoons and most of Monday hmm. because every sermon tanked. And my dear wife learned um, and taught my young boys when they were young boys, just leave dad alone. <laughs> just don't talk to him. Just leave him alone because he's got to come out of this and he will eventually emerge. But right now... He is, I was, furious because I did not do it as it should have been done. And I, for years, had people tell me, you got to get, it's okay, that was a good sermon, I learned a lot. No, because I didn't do this like I wanted to do it. And I decided that was good. Um, As bad as it was for my wife and kids, I decided it's okay because what it meant was I still had this view of preaching that no matter how well I did, I always got it wrong because there was something I could have done better and he deserves the absolute best. And, and so it was one of those deals where, where I hate Sunday afternoon and, and Monday, but if I ever get to the point where I don't hate it, it means I've grown complacent with my work on Sunday. And so I decided that that was an acceptable, bad part of my week because it meant I was still holding myself to that standard of, frankly, perfection. I missed this passage, and this passage would have illuminated my point, and I forgot about it, and I didn't use it. What's wrong with you? You knew that passage was there. Why didn't you use it, you idiot? 
<laughs> yeah. Very Lutheran internal monologue. Well, you're right. Going on here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Calvinists. <laughs> Get behind me, devil. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was telling Jim earlier, my standard, because I drive into church early by myself and Pam comes separately um, when I was pastoring. On my drive home, I would say to myself repeatedly, let it go. Let it go. And 30 seconds later, I'm beating myself up for not having expressed that like I should have. Let it go. And that argument with myself continues for at least 24 hours. So was there a point where that got better? Never. And it never got better. Maybe it got worse. So still the day when you preach? Yes. Hmm. I preached at uh, Brian Church in Shoreline two weeks ago. Home church of Gary Hansen, one of the first guests on the pod. And I felt pretty good about the way Sunday morning went, but then I spoke Sunday evening and it wasn't a, a, a sermon per se. I really messed that up bad. I, it was a wreck. Now, your, your dad, Jim, who is pastor there now, assures me it was not a wreck. No, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't know a wreck. It was a wreck. And Pam doesn't know it was a wreck because they don't know what was in my head that I didn't do. But I know what was in my head that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. So there must be some avenue of spiritual discipline that you engage in to get through that somehow. Or is it just... After another day, it'll wear off and you keep going. I'm wondering, how do you recover? How do you recover spiritually from that experience? I think some of it is physiological. That is to say, I am so entirely preaching. There is so much adrenaline. And and any preacher, whether he'll admit it or not, knows that it's not unlike an actor's performance, Mm -hmm. right? That, That it's physiological. I am exhausted physically, mentally, and emotionally. And, and like Elijah coming down off the mountain, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. And people shouldn't see this. You know, I should be in a cave. And so I don't think it's so much a spiritual discipline as just allowing myself the time to recover physically, emotionally, just recover. I've exhausted myself. And that's really hard to explain to somebody who hasn't preached. Yes. I think they don't, Anybody they, listening can can understand if you have preached a sermon. I mean, just yesterday I got home and I didn't feel like I nailed my sermon at all. Um, and I got home and I was just exhausted. And I, I, I was walking my house and my wife's like, what's wrong? I said, I'm just, I'm just exhausted. Yeah. And she says, well, why don't you take a nap? It's like, it's not that kind of exhaustion. No. I'm not tired. I'm just exhausted. And so I went out for a run and, you know, again, you don't run when you're physically only exhausted, but there's just something this, it's just hard to even explain what you feel like when you, and even this happens when you preach well, Yes. when you spend yourself like that and you, and you feel like you've, um, you know, discharged your duty well, there is still just this emotional, I'm sure you, you preached yesterday down in Chicago, didn't you? Well, you two are making me think that I've never preached in my life because <laughs> I just don't feel as badly as you two do when you're done. And, and I think the conversational preacher has a bigger problem 
And the only comparison I've ever come up with is the ice skater who has to smile. Even while they're doing all these triple Lutzes, they have to do it with this big smile. And at the end, you know what they, uh, they call the room where they go afterwards? Hmm. Where, where the cameras are on them and they sit with their coach yeah. and look at the scores? They call that the kiss and cry room. <laughs> and the reason they cry is because they've been out there with this big smile on their face working their rear ends off. Yeah. And they are exhausted from that effort. And, and the emotions are just going to come out. And that's the kind of emotional and spiritual and physical exhaustion I feel after every preaching. So recovery is as much about the passage of time as it is a spiritual discipline. The other thing that helps me, we were talking about this earlier, is getting to work on the next sermon. My deadline used to be Friday noon. I backed it up to Thursday noon, so I would have more time for that finished sermon to percolate at the back end, but also so I would start it earlier, because the quickest way to leave that one behind is to start on the next one and get my juices flowing and and convince myself I'm going to do this one better than the one I just screwed up. <laughs> now, on Monday, I'll think, it screwed it up again. But at least I can delude myself for the next five days into thinking, I got this. I got this. <laughs> well, that speaks to the rhythm of pastoral life and, and yes. how essential that rhythm is to have yes. habits and patterns that are continual and uh, even the discipline of recovery, the discipline of starting the next sermon. Yeah. It's yes. crucial. Yeah, and it, it's hard. I think people who, who don't do pastoral work Maybe they do a big presentation, you know, for their boss or for their team once a month or something like that. It's so different when you're doing that on a Sunday and then you get a little bit off and then you realize, okay, I got to do this exact same thing in six days from now. Yeah, you finish one and you got to start the next. Well, and when we were talking earlier, one of the things I said is, I can sometimes get in this on, even if it's Monday morning and I haven't gotten over the fact that my sermon wasn't great. I can think to myself in this moment of clarity, you know what? It's highly likely that I am the only person in my congregation that is still thinking about this sermon yes. right now. It, it may have a long-term impact on people, but, but it's not immediately as people aren't sitting at home thinking, man, Pastor Jim really messed up today. He should have done this or he should have done this. They've moved on. And so I wonder if that, this is a, a good kind of transition to talk about if the sermon matters a lot to us and we need to continue to craft and value and, and honor that. But for people, maybe that isn't as immediately necessary. What are the things that are immediately necessary for them? Does that make sense? It does, and and maybe uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up in a yeah. minute. But but maybe what matters to them that comes through if our style is conversational is that we've connected with them, that we've touched mm-hmm. them, that they may not remember how that touching happened, but they felt that connection. Yes. Yeah. The other thing is is uh, and you're gonna find this. Um, You'll be surprised. I'm shocked at months, years later, they remember something I said. Hmm. And, and I thought I totally messed it up, hmm. but it stuck with them. So I think don't underestimate how much they hang on to, but I do think it's also that they felt a bond. They felt a connection. They felt that, okay, he gets it. 
And they may not remember the specifics of that getting, but yeah. that he connected. And even I, I feel like, you know, for just a little background for those in podcast land, Craig pastored Celebration Bible Church for seven years mm-hmm. um, before I came there. So we have kind of a connection with the same congregation, the same people. Um, along with knowing what they're going through, I also, they know me. They've got to know my style and my sense of humor and my jokes and my, you know, approach to scripture, that that connection goes both ways, that they can understand me more in the same way that I can understand Mm -hmm. them more. And I think there's a lot of value to that. I'm not preaching to a congregation. I'm preaching to people. I'm preaching to God's people. Yeah. And to the extent that I forget that, I lose uh, the potential for impact that I could otherwise have. Yeah. So outside of Sunday, Sunday's a, a big day f- where you impact probably the most people at one time. But beyond, beyond Sunday, what did your week look like as a pastor when you were doing this full time? Um, like what, did, what did a week look like in, in your life as a pastor? When I started, it was the old days. That is to say, I did a sermon, then I did an adult Sunday school lesson. And I did a Sunday night sermon, and then I had a Wednesday night Bible study. So I was Four just teachings. yeah, uh, a ton of time um, studying, doing mm-hmm. prep, and so that was that was by far the bulk of the week. Um, that was also the old days when the pastor was expected to visit everybody in the congregation at least <laughs> twice a year. Yeah, and so uh, I carved out time each week, um, called up, and I went and sit and had a cup of coffee in their living room or whatever. And then there were the hospital calls and so forth. Now, during my time in ministry, um, 42 years later, people don't want you in their homes like that. Right. Their schedules are too busy. Um, there's still the, the emergency situations that have to come up. And um, Sunday night and Wednesday night are largely a thing of the past in terms of Bible study, at least in the churches I pastor. Yeah. And so... And so I can admit this now because I'm, I'm not a pastor anymore. Compared to the early days, I felt like I was skating. Hmm. And, and Pam and I would go home from visiting another church. And some of these churches we attended for three, four months at a time trying to find out, is this where we belong? And hear pastors talk about how they're overworked and think, you lazy slob. <laughs> I mean, you're preaching a Sunday morning sermon and that's all you're doing right. all week long. Right. And you're complaining how busy you are. Right. Give me a break. Well, <laughs> I think uh, you're right that the idea of the home visit is not part of American Christian culture anymore. No. And I think to some degree that's unfortunate. Agreed. Agreed. How do we do that? Because what's being accomplished there is not only are they getting to know you, but you're learning about your flock and learning how you can minister, how you can impact. You are being a beacon of the gospel in their lives in an intimate way that cannot happen on a Sunday morning. Agreed. I, I, I think it is a loss. And there's something about seeing their space, Yes. being in the space where they live, and it may be what hangs on the walls or what yeah. sits on the coffee tables, but it helps me understand who they are. Absolutely. The other thing that helped that I tried to do is go to their place of work, and sometimes that's not possible. But that's the other place where they spend the majority of their time. Hmm. And seeing what they do at the factory or at the office or wherever. And that's something that I can still do in, in contemporary culture. Yeah. I can drop in on Matt at his work. And I usually find an excuse to do that. There's something I have to take to him. Yeah. And 
and meet his receptionist or, and his co-workers and just see the physical space informs me and helps me be a better preacher, frankly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that that's huge. And it, whether regardless of how big our church is, there is always going to be a distance between the people and the pastor, yes. just a distance of authority. And, and, you know, I think there's different opinions on how strong that distance should be. And some people, I think, encourage it and some push away. And so do you want them, for example, to call you Pastor Jim or Pastor Craig? I don't. Okay. And I know that when I first started working with Paul, who there's uh-huh. the long train here, again, yes. for those out there is Craig uh, hired Paul, who was just working in the in the medical device sales business to become an associate pastor. Then Craig left and Paul hired me. So I'm kind of like third generation from Craig as far as that goes. And I know that that was a big thing that Paul insisted and wanted me to be called Pastor Jim to kind of establish that sense of authority. And I, I totally get that. But for me and where I feel like the congregation is now, I refer to myself as Jim. If they call me Pastor Jim, I'm not going to like correct them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I go by Jim. I think you maybe on Sunday notice, I don't usually wear a tie mm-hmm. when I preach. Um, and it's just maybe the, the congregation has evolved or maybe it's my personal take and, and style on it. But, the, but, but again, there's that whole discussion of like, where is, what is the difference between my authority as pastor, my role as pastor, my existence as Jim Shamaria, and in, within the congregation dynamic and how that plays? I refer to that first church I pastored for 18 months. God eventually put me back in ministry in a church in Prunedale. I was the first full-time pastor they'd ever had. Prunedale, California. Prunedale, California, north of Salinas. Um, a small, wonderful congregation. We formed wonderful relationships. I was there for seven years. I eventually felt that I lost my prophetic voice. Hmm. Uh, and and as we talked about it, and, and as I went to pastor a church in Riverside, California, and I explained to them, I think one of the contributing factors was that I was Craig. I was their friend. Hmm. Many of them were the same age we were at that point, had kids the same sure. age. We socialized, and I was Craig. And so when I got up on Sunday, I was Craig talking to them. And I decided it would have been healthier had they called me Pastor Craig. It would have helped me retain that prophetic voice as I delivered the word to them. Now, that was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And so maybe that wouldn't be the case now. Well, and I wonder if it's even congregation by congregation. It may well be, Your yes. role needed to be prophetic there, mm-hmm. whereas maybe at Celebration or some other place, your role was different. It was more of a shepherding role or a, you know, whatever. And they they may have seen me as as the voice of God in the pulpit, not je- yeah, yeah, yeah. even without the title. Yeah. In Prunedale, I think it would have helped them continue to see me as someone other than just the guy that we go do 10Ks with on yeah. Saturday and then talks to us. You know what I mean? Yeah. And again, that I think is a uh, a reminder of the calling of pastor. It's not just like another job because you are, we are functioning as not in a priestly role in the same way that the Old Testament Israelite priests were, but we are in some ways helping people to see that connection between what God is doing and what they are doing. So when I stand up to preach, it is thus saith the Lord. Right. And and that that frightens me with a godly f- 
fear, and it should um, quiet them. It should, uh, yeah. It, you know. And so our responsibility then is to make sure if we are claiming to speak on behalf of God, that we're doing it correctly, that we're preaching the word accurately, that we're not just preaching, saying, thus saith the Lord, but actually this is, thus saith Jim, disguised as the Lord. Which, which made me very impatient with the sloppy preaching that I heard sometimes over the last year. Yeah. And, and coming full circle, it's also why I, was, I would be so angry with myself Sunday afternoons and Mondays, mm-hmm. because I have this holy fear of messing up. Thus saith the Lord. Right, and it's and it's not, it's not anything about our egos or no. feeling like I messed up and now people are going to think I'm a bad preacher. No, and that I mean I, I, I sometimes will pray before. Well, I always pray before I preach. <laughs> sometimes I specifically will pray, God, if I need to look stupid during the sermon in order for your point to come across, I pray that that happens. Yeah. I pray that I look like a fool if that's necessary, um, and I think that that's, you know, it's. The, the performance aspect of, of a sermon is not for glory on ourselves, but it's because that's an effective way to communicate. Yes. And if we can be more effective in communicating God's word, we should. In a sense, I, I think of my preaching as not for them, but before God. Yeah. And, and, and that is a frightening, in a godly fear kind of thing to yeah. do. Yeah. So we kind of talked a little bit about the home visit and, and visiting people at work and that sort of thing. Um, what are some other ways that you found yourself engaging in the lives of people? And if you were to be speaking to a pastor today, maybe a young guy out there listening or, or a woman in ministry and thinking, how can I kind of fulfill this role? What are some, some advice that you'd give them besides honor the craft of the sermon? I, uh, for me, I can't say for anybody else, for me, being uh, a person of very varied interests. <laughs> um, I learned to play golf because yeah. I had golfers in my church. Yes. I learned to work on cars. I like working on cars, but you'd be surprised how many guys like to work on cars. Yeah. Learn as much as you can about as many things as you can. One of the biggest compliments I was ever pray, uh, paid was... You seem to be able to talk to anybody about almost anything. Um, and that that requires some effort on my part. I've been hunting once in my life, and I didn't carry a gun. I went with a guy who carried a gun. <laughs> That's not going hunting, then. <laughs> That's not going hunting. That's going on a hunting trip, yeah. but not going hunting. But I, I realized I need to know about hunting because the guys I want to minister to. Now, okay, I can't cook. I, I don't know anything about cooking. But I think I need to be a person of varied interests so that I can relate to them with their interests. Yeah, I laughed at that because three, four years ago, I realized that people in my church really love the Detroit Lions, Mich- University mm-hmm. of Michigan football, Michigan State football. I grew up watching football games here and then. We would watch the Washington Huskies. But growing up in Seattle in the 90s, there wasn't a whole lot of draw to watch uh, what we called the Stinkhawks at that time. Mm-hmm. And so... During kind of my my formative college years, I kind of completely detached from American football. But at one point, I said, "You know what? I need to in, immerse myself into yeah. the world of professional football because that's what these people are into." Now, luckily, the year that I decided to 
to immerse myself was I think Russell Wilson's second year when the Seahawks mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. won the Super Bowl. So that was that was pretty exciting. But yeah, I, I found that to be a huge thing of value that I can have a conversation about a football game mm-hmm. and just you know I'm in their lives in that way. In the meantime, you learn fascinating things, but that's what's important to them. Sure. And when they talk about it, they feel like okay, he's interested in what's important to me. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do to make sure that your congregations were not solely focused on one particular demographic? Um, Celebration has always been a Mm multi-generational church, and I imagine that was from the beginning and during your ministry as well. What are some things that you did to ensure that that happened? Or did it just happen? It didn't just happen. It didn't happen. Hmm. In Arizona, in the West Valley of the Phoenix metro area, it did not happen. And that You had a, another church there? Yes. Yeah. Because that geographical area is a bunch of, of sub-45s. I mean, that, that whole community area of the Phoenix metro area did not exist 15 years ago. It was cotton fields. And the housing boom, they threw up these cookie-cutter houses thousands at a time and marketed them to young families. Mm. And as a result, that's who came to church. And, and that was one of the problems with that church. We lacked the, the blessing of senior saints hmm. who have modeled service and maturity and the long haul. Hmm. And that was one of the things I f- was frustrated with. Um, now, racially, it was a very demographic because that community was. But in terms of age spread, it was not. So what did you do at Celebration? To Was it just because that was the reality yeah. of the community? It was already built in, yes. And, and because West Michigan is so family-oriented and you have multiple generations, the first question in Phoenix you ask somebody is, where are you from? Because hmm. everybody is from Moved somewhere there, else. Yeah. In West Michigan, it's the opposite. Our daughter-in-law, uh, until she... Uh, married Steve, had never been out of West Michigan, literally Mm. had never been to another state, I don't think. Mm. And so you get these multiple generation families that live within five, 10 miles of each other. And so it's sort of built into a church. That was a culture shock for me. And I'm still adjusting to that because growing out in the West Coast, it's similar to, to that. But even though to some degree, that is the demographic here of West Michigan, clearly celebration when you were there and and still as it's gone has done something to cultivate that because there's lots of churches in West Michigan that are just younger or just older. So what is the secret mix to not only embracing the multi-generational reality of this community, but also cultivating that and making sure that everybody feels welcome? You talked about McDonaldisms. I'm going to give you another one. (laughs) Um, churches take on the personality of their pastor. Yeah. And if the pastor demonstrates by his behavior that he values everybody across that demographic spread, then they feel valued and they value one another. If I spend time with the older people, some of whom still want me to show up on their front door yeah. and just sit and visit with them and have a cup of coffee with them. If I talk about how important those little kids are that just left for children's church. If I demonstrate that value, then they adopt that value. Yes. And they value each other. Yes. And accept their differences because they're going to be, especially now, culturally, they're going to come from very different places, Mm -hmm. but they accept that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that that has to be built into the church is that we're not going to be perfect for any one particular group, but hopefully together we will all find a way to yeah. <laughs> successfully exist in a way that that is honoring to God. Yeah, and I have to model that. Yeah. I have to model that I value them regardless of what demographic subset they're in. Yeah, and regardless of your preferences. Because there may be things that you'd prefer to not do it that way, but because yes. they do, you, yes. you defer. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons, not the only, that Celebration never fought the music war. Hmm. Because they understood it's not about me. Yeah. There's a bigger picture here, and we have to honor each other's preferences. Yeah. yeah. And still built into our DNA at the church, and this isn't me, this is part of just what I adopted, is this desire to sing modern songs and songs from 20 years ago and songs from 200 mm-hmm. years ago in the same service and embrace that. And there are two ways to do that. One is, okay, we're going to have a blended musical style to appease everybody, mm-hmm. and and that may look on the surface, but it's very different from we're going to have blended musical styles because we value yes, all of those musical styles. Absolutely. And we value the people who identify with those. Yeah. That's a subtle but I think critical difference. Well, I think that can play out into an entire Sunday service. Are you doing this to appease the people who are coming into your church? Or are you doing this because you value the community of God and those yes. who connect with them? And all of those elements are have value and have worth. Yeah. That, and we don't want to throw any of them aside. Exactly. Yeah. And people can sniff out when yes. you're just giving it to them to, to keep get, them happy or to keep them coming. Yes. <laughs> or to to raise your attendance. And that's yeah, you're right. And that's. We, we try not to rail too hard against the megachurch here, but to me that is one of the the dangers is that it can become an appeasement mm-hmm. service rather than, you know, meeting the, the needs and, the, and maybe even meeting the needs that people don't know that they have. Or it can, yeah, or it can become so specialized that it loses any diversity. Yeah. yeah. You, you walk in there and you see, okay, everybody is in here is, is between the ages of 30 and 32, yep. and their kids are between the, you know what I mean? Yep. It, because you've targeted, so targeted them. Yep. Yeah. All right. So when we end our podcast, we do, we ask three questions. Okay. We ask, what is your biggest joy in ministry, or what was, has mm-hmm. been your biggest joy in ministry? What has been your biggest drain, the thing that you wish you could not do? <laughs> and then what are some things that you're reading or have been reading or that you would recommend to our audience to, to read? So let's start with the biggest joy in ministry for you. Um, another McDonaldism. The people are the best part. As much as I loved delivering the word, it was for the people. Mm. And I am so enriched by all of the, some of whom were real struggles to pastor. You know, they, they were demanding personalities. EGR. Extra grace required. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I am so enriched. And that they allow me to come into their lives, in fact, want me in their lives at critical junctures yeah. to minister. That is such an honor uh, that the people are the best part. There's no yeah. question. And and I will go to my grave thankful for, and I can remember individuals from 30, 40 years ago and interactions I had with them and think I'm blessed by being allowed to be a part of their life. Hmm. That I just, yeah, that's even better than preaching. Hmm. 
and the, and the two go hand in hand. The hardest part for me is, is was, um, figuring out what this church body needs to get it from point A to point B. I never felt like I understood that. Hmm. That the, and maybe I, maybe that was my mistake. Maybe point A was where we were and we're supposed to be. Maybe I bought into the erroneous notion that I'm supposed to lead this flock someplace yeah. because I never felt like I knew where it was I was supposed to lead them. The perceived obligation to be a visionary leader. Yeah. And I, I never was any good at that. I think I was good at delivering the word. And for the most part, though, I certainly got better at it, yeah. at caring for the flock. I was never an organizational leader. Hmm. Just don't have it. And yeah. so feeling like you had to do that. Yes. <laughs> the expectations that everyone else had on you. And, and frankly, because Pathway, when I announced that I was going to retire in the fall, Pathway's decision that they could not survive a transition hmm. and therefore would cease to exist uh, made me feel like a real failure. Because if I had led that startup church like I should have, they would have endured. Hmm. And they didn't. And, and I'm, I'm not done with that. I still have not found the cubbyhole into which I should put that. Hmm. And they're all saying, oh, we learned so much and we grew so much as individuals. But, but I wanted more than that. I wanted that church to continue to do that for subsequent generations. I grew up in a church like that. Yeah. I was there when it started. And here it is 50-some years later still doing all of that. And that's what I wanted for Pathway. And it didn't happen. And that feels like a failure. Well, and I think that reveals the true pastoral heart of it not being about you. It not being about, great, this was awesome while I'm here. Now that I'm gone, it can die, whatever. At least it was good while I'm here. Your care and your values for the spiritual development and existence of those people. Their kids and their grandkids. I wanted them to have that. Um, What am I reading? I'm sorry to confess. You may want to edit this out. (laughs) I'm not one of those guys that reads the latest. In fact, I intentionally avoid. (laughs) Um, And this is going to sound sanctimonious in the extreme. I think more pastors should spend less time reading the books and more time reading the book. Hmm. The older I've gotten, the more I just enjoy reading the Bible. Hmm. My favorite is Old Testament narrative sections and climbing into them and living them. I enjoy reading classic novels. I was a bad student in high school, and I never read all that English lit I was supposed to read. Right. And so I go back, and I've reread, like, I just read Silas Marner for the third time. Why didn't anybody tell me about this? Yes. <laughs> they're really good, especially the classics. They're, they're morality stories. Yeah. They're excellent. And, and so I enjoy just going back and reading the Bible. Hmm. So I don't, I've never picked up an Andy Stanley book. And don't plan on it. Yeah. In fact, I plan not to. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather read Ephesians or First Kings or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. All right. We'll give you a pass on that then. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Craig, for being here. Uh, it's been great to talk to you a little bit more about. Amen. I've enjoyed it. Under the hood of pastoral ministry. Yeah. And you're working on some some books yourself, right? Yes. So kind of we'll keep our eyes open for that and yeah. we'll let people know. I figure it's a five-year project. Yeah. 
through the, through the whole editorial and all that, it's a five-year project, and I'm one year in. Well, next time you're back in Grand Rapids, we'll get you on the podcast again and see, see what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chapter two. Thanks, brother. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Craig. Uh-huh. You've been listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Jim Shamaria and me, Matt Loverin. Join us every two weeks as we start a new conversation about life and leadership in the local church. If you like us, make sure you follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And also tell all your friends so they can join the conversation.